Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. This is episode 378 and I'm super excited. We are almost at our nine year mark and I am excited to start this. I took two week break and now I have Matt Essam on and Matt is out in Leeds, which is outside of Manchester in England. And he wrote this incredible book, which he actually is going to give you a free copy for. And I'll give you that link. Hopefully you could hear that. Not that he's not shouting it out, but you, I bought a copy on Amazon. Yeah, I know, Matt. Matt Wood says, what? And I just wanted to tell Pam Brown, happy birthday, because today's her birthday. Happy birthday, Pam. So I am excited for you guys to see. It may look like it's not a lot in there, but it's so much. I was actually excited that it wasn't so thick of a book, but then you, I had to kind of put some things down, Matt, sometimes because it was like I had to really think about some things. And you have a great story. So can you give us just a little bit of your background, where you got your start in design and then what you focus on now? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Um, and yeah, I think when you when you say to me, you're kind of starting design, the first thing that comes to my mind is actually university. And the reason that comes to my mind is because when I first went to university here in Leeds, I chose a degree that I thought was going to get me a really good job. And so my first degree was called computing for business. And it was the most boring degree that anyone could ever do and i remember specifically i was in one of the first workshops and we were doing the computing side and the tutor just said right we're going to start with something really basic here so i just want you to open up the command line and i want you to type this command into the command line and so i put my hand up and i'm like what's the command line <laughs> And honestly, like loads of people burst out laughing and he came storming over dead serious. And he said to me, you're not a school anymore. If you want to be the class clown, you can leave. I'm like you should have seen the look on his face when he realized I wasn't joking. <laughs> so I, I, the obvious option from that is change course, right? But they didn't let me. So they said, look, if you can make it through the first year of this course and prove that you're good enough to stay at university, then you can change. And so I put blood sweat and tears into that and it was the most painful year of studying things that I really didn't want to study and I came out the other side of that just scraping through and I managed to change to a course called new media and they had you know lots of different things that it was about but one of the core modules was these these design modules and so we started learning about typefaces and Helvetica and all of this cool stuff and I remember that feeling of like any minute now, someone's going to burst into this lecture room and say, do we have a Matt Essam here? Yeah, sorry, we've made a mistake. <laughs> like you've got to go back and study that, that other stuff. And that was really my first taste of design. And I just, I just fell in love with it. You know, I just fell in love with the, the feeling of it. I'd done things in the past, but only kind of in an amateur way. That was the first time I'd really started to, to take it seriously. So why were you a creative, were you a creative kid? Not why yeah, were you a creative kid, but so you were- Yeah, I mean, I lived in the middle of nowhere. So really I was out, spent most of my days kind of like building camps and making things and and creating basically in some form or another. And so I think when I went to school, there, was, there wasn't a lot of that. It was very much, I went to a traditional school, which is very much like math, English, science. We had an art class, but you had to be 
really good at drawing to even be considered to be let into the art class. And so I felt like that was my outlet in my kind of spare time creating things. And so I remember when I was on that course at university, it was that same feeling of like, I'm just kind of playing here. I'm allowed to play and there's no real rules. Whereas computing and business, there are so many rules, you know, mm. there's like formulas and this is how this works. And in design, there are principles, but there's much more fluidity and, and much more creativity. It sounds like my friend Paul, who's here, the book designer in Minneapolis, he studied physics and he would play doing graphic design on the side. He like made all kinds of books and things and like when he was in his PhD. So it's sort of like, well, did you have a focus? Like, did your parents like, hey, this is a good degree, Matt? Or were they like, did they even know? My parents didn't know what graphic design was. I don't think they did. I mean, my parents have always been really supportive and have always said, you know, do do what you want to do. But I I went to traditional schools. So graphic des I'd never heard of graphic design. You know, the choice was you study, you know, you're either like geography, maths, English, or you're sporty. You're either kind of academic or sporty. And I was neither really in the middle. I was a little bit musical. So I got a bit of, I think I, I won like a music award once for playing the guitar at something, but that was like the only thing. I was always the kid at prize day that never got anything because I was never academic or sporty. There was no kind of like creative option. So I don't think it was as much my parents. Um, in fact, my parents encouraged me to do things outside of school, like take guitar lessons and stuff like that. Um, I think it was more my school and the kind of society that I grew up in just didn't really acknowledge creativity as a serious thing. So I always like, to ask this so you you remember the safe word it's rooster if you yeah. don't uh, it's not on the sheet so i so were either of your parents entrepreneurs so yes and no in the sense that my dad had a traditional job for a long time and then he was self-employed and he was actually a carpenter well he hates the word carpenter he was a joiner so he made really incredible furniture for people um and so he was self-employed and creative, I suppose. My mom was a director of a business. So they both were kind of their own bosses in a way. Um, and my godfather was was quite creative. And so I had entrepreneurial creative ties in my family for sure. So that's funny that you were out there building things but your and your dad's a joiner. So 3D things were um, important to you. I don't know if this will come to fruition i'm just making little little paths right now mm. so but what for me for what the book does it is that full circle it's that looking at something i think when you started your business you were just looking at it right here i'm getting a check from this client i'm doing this work i'm getting a check from this client I'm doing, which so many of us get stuck in right but then you had um through something that wasn't so great uh, uh your godfather's son passed away unexpected, unexpectedly and it kind of forced you into thinking about your like this isn't I'm living awesome this is great I'm skiing in Canada right um but you were um it, you didn't you were just living kind of check to check maybe not paycheck to paycheck but client to client right and it was just this but it wasn't this business so had you always been because sometimes when you have to, when you're building things, it's really important to not just look at the each individual joint. You have to look at the whole thing. Was that something you were good at, even as a kid, looking at the small parts and the big parts? I was definitely better at looking at the big parts. When hmm. things got too technical, uh, I got a little bit bored. 
my mum always did to me like I would get halfway through something and then lose the patience for it and I think my dad probably would agree with that I was very good at like kind of directing other people to do the things that needed doing but I was never very good at following through with the things myself I had the vision for what I wanted to build but when it actually came to the nitty-gritty of you know the measurements and putting it on I've kind of got a little bit bored after that and I think that's why I really struggled with computing because obviously computing is very logical and technical and obviously there are the creative elements to it but yeah I, I'm very much that's my personality I'm a big picture thinker and if I get too bogged down in the details that really kind of slows me down mm, okay all right so let me um ask you a couple more intro questions and then we're going to dive in. I know John is here, so I'm excited that I get to, um, um, John Ingalls had sent me in some questions. So I always like to make sure y'all get your questions asked because this is really just me representing y'all and me. I think I have lots of questions too, but it's a family here. So how long have you been doing what you're doing now? Can you take us through, through the, um, so you get a degree in media? Yeah. Yeah. And then what did you do? Like, take us from there to to the time when your um, your godfather's son passed away and you had that because you're in business for yourself at that point. Yeah. So I was really lucky. I got a job straight out of university for one of the biggest ag advertising and marketing agencies in the country, maybe even in the world. You know, they had every single client that you could think of from Heineken, Adidas, Philips, pretty much like every big name brand. They designed the uh, Olympic logos for us and in, in, in when we hosted the Olympics and all, all kind of stuff like that. Um, and I remember actually when I walked into that office for the first time, they had this kind of hall with all of these projects that they had done. And I remember the creative director taking me down and looking at these projects with big pictures of David Beckham and Lionel Messi. And, and in my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is gonna be incredible. This is like the graduate's ideal dream job. I'm gonna be getting to meet David Beckham and you know, I'm gonna be, it's gonna be like Mad Men. They had the fake grass, the table tennis tables. It was like the advertising agency. And very quickly, I realized that I was a big cog in a, sorry, a small cog in a very big wheel. And the majority of my time was spent kind of fixing broken email templates. And I looked, as I went through and worked at, at that company, I looked at the people around me and I thought, do you know what, in best case scenario, in like four or five years time, I'm gonna be managing people like me. And this isn't really where I wanna be. Um, and so I decided like, I wanted to, to go off and try something else really. And I'd always had the idea of freelancing or, or starting my own business, but I wasn't quite sure if the security was there. You know, like mm. I like the idea of it, but like, how am I going to find my own clients? Like, is there even any money out there? And again, I remember the specific time when I decided to hand in my notice. I was sat at a computer doing some work and this email came through from my project manager with some kind of like last minute amends. But instead of, usually we got the, title was project brief or the title of the pdf mm -hmm. was project brief and this one was project proposal and i thought that's strange and i kind of hesitated slightly before i opened it up so i was like am i going to get in trouble for someone sent me this by mistake kind of looked around made sure no one was looking and so i opened up this proposal and scroll down and sure enough they've got the whole thing mapped out and just to give you some context price and all right yeah Time price, table price price and everything mm -hmm. yeah 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 um, so it's the thing that the client sees, right? 
And just to give you some context, for about a day's work, which is what they were asking me to do on it, they were charging a year's worth of my salary. Whoa. So that's when I realized that there was money out there to be made. Um, <laughs> and so I, I decided I was going to hand in my notice and, and essentially go freelance. And actually a friend of mine was working down the road and he was in an agency that he wasn't happy with. He quit his business and he became my first client. And it was that typical thing, you know, where you start off, you're doing anything for anyone. So mm. I, I trained in web development and design. So I was designing things and building websites for anybody who needed it. It was family, friends. It was, you know, missing cat posters, your dogs, nans, friends, dads, whatever. We can help with, with it. And um, it was great for a while, you know, because you have that autonomy and freedom. But after a while, I kind of felt that the work either fell into one of two categories. It was either really creatively fulfilling and you had complete creative control and it was so exciting, but didn't really have a budget. Or it was kind of in the camp where it was like, we've got a big budget, but this is exactly what we need you to do. And you were kind of just like the creative monkey churning out the work. Mm -hmm. And so I, re I actually read a book called The 4-Hour Workweek, which mm -hmm. I'm sure lots of people have heard Tim of. Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tim Ferriss. And I got this idea in my head that, well, if I was just doing the work that paid well, but it was boring, um, and I was on a beach in Thailand, then this would be fun. <laughs> so, and I I'd kind of read all this concept that Tim Ferriss talks about, automation, delegation, elimination. I thought, well, what about if I just... I'm the client facing person and I get everybody else to do the work. I mean, this is this complete kind of remote business. I can run it for anywhere in the world and I can sit on a beach in Thailand sipping pina coladas and having Skype calls with my clients. So that was my vision. And so I set off around the world and to my surprise for, for quite a while it worked. How long was quite a while? Um, probably about a year. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was at the point I was, I was planning to carry on going, but that was the point, you know, you said, take me to that point. And so I'd got around to Canada and I was kind of on my way back, but I wasn't sure how long I was going to stay there. I was going to do a ski season in Canada. And so the kind of moment that you're referencing in the book, it's like a Tuesday afternoon. I'm sat on the ski slope in the Canadian mountains, overlooking this beautiful vista and I'm about to actually take a photo on my phone and post it to Instagram. And I get this real sense that I'm essentially being disingenuous and inauthentic because what I'm about to post and portray to the outside world isn't really how I'm feeling. Mm. And, it, and it kind of suddenly dawned on me that like success from an external point of view is very different from success internally. And so I realized that Although it looked like I had this amazing business that I could run from anywhere in the world and I was working and snowboarding in Canada, the reality was I had 20 clients that were like 20 bosses. And I was just this person, this middleman, trying to keep my clients happy, trying to fix things when it didn't work. And it was stressful. And I was up at crazy different hours trying to juggle different time zones. And I was just churning stuff out you know i was just i need more of this so that i can carry on snowboarding and and it kind of got to the point where all meaning and purpose had gone out of it and it really was just a means to an end and although it might sound glamorous the reality is that i think it's tony robbins that says success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure mm. 
because where do you go from there you've got what you thought was going to make you happy and you're not happy that that's like a slippery slope um and you know that that timing of my godfather's son passing away was at that point where i was starting already to have a bit of an existential crisis and that kind of allowed me to really step back and think well you know if if i knew i was going to die in my late 30s or early 40s um what would i do because it wouldn't be this Mm. so were you traveling with people with friends or with a significant kind of. other? I was doing quite a lot of traveling on my own to be honest. I started off with one of my best friends in Southeast Asia and he had a, a remote business as well. And then he went to Australia. Um, I went to New Zealand to see my family and I stayed there for a while um, and was doing some work out there. And you and almost died came. driving a car off a cliff. Yeah, that is true. You did tell that little story. Yeah, that was actually that was actually a decade earlier. So that was actually when I was 18 and I had been, that was my kind of first experience working in the, uh, in the creative industries. But yeah, I'd, I'd kind of gone out there to see my family and I knew that if this whole business idea didn't work out, I had a sofa to, to crash on or a couch as you guys call it. Um, and so, so that was really that point where I was on my own. And I was actually kind of staying in not great accommodation and I was surrounded by people who were out partying every night. And I just kind of started thinking, what am I doing? You know, like, what am I really doing here? What is this all about? So what was important to you before? So because you're chasing this dream um, of this like experience and it's not like you're necessarily doing it with anybody in particular. You might have times when you're doing things, but what, were you just, I mean, you were young, so you were just trying things, but was there, I mean, were you more purpose-driven as a kid or, I don't know, well, I think, I'm, this wasn't on the sheet, so again, you're yeah, no, it's rooster. It's cool because I think in hindsight, when I look back on it, I can explain it a lot more. And now I understand about personal values and emotional states, what I was trying to get was a sense of significance. What I was trying to get was a sense of freedom and variety and all of, that was what was in my head. Mm. But I'd created this whole list of things that had to happen before I gave myself permission to feel those things. Mm. And so it was never really enough. And I'd never really thought about the purpose. So I think when I first started out, it felt meaningful because I was having those interactions with small business owners and I could see that what I was doing was making a difference. And, you know, oh, it wasn't well paid, but I didn't, you know, I went back and moved in with my parents. I didn't need lots of money. And so I think the idea was like, wow, this Tim Ferriss guy is living the dream, you know, he's living the, the new rich lifestyle. And what about how cool would it be if I could do that? And, and I was keeping a, a kind of diary of it on Instagram. And it was, it was that kind of egotistical, like, look how great my life is. Look how successful I am. Whereas like kind of deep inside, I was, I was pretty unfulfilled and, and I wasn't expecting that. I was kind of expecting to be like, look how cool I am. But really when the day to day, you know, you don't see behind the scenes of people's Instagram reel, that was kind of what was going on. So I love, cause you had said this, um, I don't know if it, I can't remember if it was in the book or if it was in something that I listened to, but it was about that, that um, you were searching for significance, search, searching for that. And that was so 
um, Van said already that resonates. Um, Matt's like, I love the anti-success stories because the world has enough Instagram moments and we aren't living in an Instagram world. And actually it just helps if we think that people are like that, it's just, um, if we never show the, the growth, then we don't, um, we just think that we're without, or we, we are, we're not enough. And so it's that. So this family member it passes away and you go back um, and you are rethinking a lot of things. You stayed doing work. Did you have this kind of overlap method is what I call it, where you're doing this, the thing that's paying the bills. And then you, you start investing time and money into this other thing so that you can do. Is yeah, that how absolutely. You I was there kind of, what I'm sure a lot of people were doing when you have a bit of a kind of existential crisis is like, I'm watching TED talks, I'm reading books, I'm, I'm frantically searching for something to, to grip onto. And a friend of mine actually recommended a book um, by Daniel Priestley, who ended up being one of my mentors called, uh, there was two, there was Key Person of Influence, but the one that really resonated was called Entrepreneurial Revolution. And the reason it resonated was because as I read that, I suddenly realized that there was a big difference between mastering the art of creativity and mastering the business of creativity. And I realized that the reason I was in what he calls worker bee mode was mm -hmm. because I totally neglected the business side of creativity. I hadn't thought about the business. I just thought about myself. I'm kind of self-employed. Client needs something. I give them that. And I'd set myself up to be an employee. Mm -hmm. But instead of having one boss, I had 20 bosses. And it really resonated with me and I, and I actually went down that path and I ended up going to some talks in London that Daniel was giving, got really, really kind of um, excited about his content and his frameworks. And so I ended up, that was the point where I made that decision where I was like, okay, something needs to change. You know, it's cost thousands of pounds to go and work with these people, but I just need to make it happen. This really resonates with me. And just so I committed to, to that time, money, energy that to be honest, I didn't really have. Um, but I just, I just did it and made it work. And what happened in that transition period for me was all about learning all of these kind of fundamental business principles, which I'd heard before, um, because obviously I'd studied business at uni. I was, I'd always been interested in business, but there's a big difference between, you know, common sense and common practice. And I realized like, I kind of knew some of these concepts, but I, I wasn't doing them. And so this was really like this boot camp reset to just take things back to basic and get really clear on like, why do you do what you do? Like, who is it for? Where's your real value? And kind of going through that painful process of uncovering all that. And as I started to implement, I started to make that transition and essentially just get rid of a lot of clients. I think in a period of about six months, I fired about 80% of my clients. And it was quite scary at the time, but I just focused on that 20% that I really, really wanted to help that could pay me at least what I wanted at that time that I thought was fair, that I could really deliver value for. And at the time I had kind of positioned myself really by that point as a kind of digital marketing agency. So I was kind of helping people with digital marketing. And the more I started to learn about business, the more I realized when I was having these conversations that a lot of my clients had fundamental business problems. Well, I was gonna say, I just started to give that advice for free mm -hmm. as part of the service. Like, I hear you wanna do this, but can I just share this thing with you that I've learned from this entrepreneur?
entrepreneur who's built several multi-million pound businesses and I've just paid a lot of money to work with. Would you mind if I shared some of these things that are working for me? And obviously people said, yeah, of course. And so we started to make these small little tweaks and it just blew my mind how these really fundamental shifts were creating more impact for these businesses that I was doing in like an hour's free consultancy than 80% of the marketing we'd done in the last few months. In those 20% of people that you kept, was there something that was consistent that you could see or just as you look at it in, like, was there something that they all had in common that they needed this other kind of um, deeper dive or they needed to do this groundwork? And I, I think of it like a doctor um, that, oh, you're you're having trouble walking or you're, you're trying to do something else, but your leg is broken and they're not even talking. They're like, we got to fix your leg before we can get you on the slopes to snowboard, right? It's, mm. not, it's not about teaching you how to snowboard, which is the digital marketing. They needed to get their legs ready and healed or in the, in the right shape so that they could do the digital marketing. And is that something you saw in those 20% that kept you engaged with those? Or was there something else, another like thin red line that went through both or the people that were, you kept? Yeah, I, I saw it in, I'd say 80% of my clients. I just didn't feel compelled to fix it. Um, mm. The thing I wanted, the, the people I wanted to help were the people that treated me with respect, that mm. treated me, in a way that was more like a partner rather than a worker. And so I just started to ignore the people and said, look, I think there's probably someone else out there better for you than me. Because it sounds to me like you know what you want, you just don't have the creative ability to execute it. Mm. And that's not really the kind of work that I want to be doing. Mm. Okay. I love this. Okay. So then you start help. When do you transition from those 20% the, that you kept to helping? Cause you realize there were lots of other creatives that also had some of these same real pain points. About yeah. Business. So, so it was, it was a gradual thing where I started thinking, okay, well let's pay attention to what is the stuff that's really moving the needle for people here. And when I went through the process with my mentor, Daniel Priestley, of unpacking my own story, it became very clear that the people I was perfectly positioned to help were other freelancers and other creative business owners, just because that was my background. Like I said to you, I got my first taste of working in the creative industries back in 2008. So it had been like a constant theme throughout my life. And so very quickly, I started to examine the importance of creativity. And I realized like not only does that feel like the most important thing in order to help people kind of self-actualize or unlock their potential? But actually creatives by nature tend to be less business focused and orientated. And so one of the big things that I was taught was focus on the people you can add the most value for. And so I started to just think about, well, who is that? And it didn't just happen overnight. First of all, I started to work with artists then I started to work with big agencies and that kind of didn't really work. And it took me a while to find where was that sweet spot of people that I could really help where in a short period of time we were going to move the needle the most. So how long did it take for you to do that kind of um, exploration? Because I actually think that lots of us go through that kind of niching, but we often are scared to do the niching. But then when you have a clear idea of who who you're for, it's really easy to talk to them, right? So mm -hmm. what with those people that you were finding out that 
that if they were working with you, you could see more significant changes in a shorter amount of time rather than like some of the other the agencies or some of the other things that you had, were working with? How long did it take you in that exploration phase? I kind of feel like it never ends. I feel like it's still going mm-hmm. on. The I more agree. people I work with, the more insight I get and the mm-hmm. more I refine and narrow. And I think you're always going to have this like ideal client persona. But also as your business evolves, then that persona maybe changes slightly. So when I first started, it was kind of like freelancers and people that were working for themselves. But then I, the more people I worked with, the, the people I realized only by working with them and going through the program, I looked at like, well, who are all the people that are getting these? Who are my case studies? Hmm. Who are these people that are like getting exponentially better results than they everybody else what do they have in common while they have these things they've got at least 10 years agency uh, 10 years industry experience they're really good at what they do like they have mastered their craft they're busy but they're just not busy with the right kind of work and you start to kind of really hone down these attributes and these kind of things that you spot in people that you just say well what about if like i just spoke to them what about if everything i did my messaging and everything i'm talking to is, is talking to them um and I think people worry because they're like, well, if I'm too aspirational, then I'm going to exclude all of these people. But what mm-hmm. tends to happen is like, as humans, we tend to be aspirational. And so let's say I said, right, I work with six figure freelancers. I can guarantee that I will get four or five applications that week from people who aren't earning six figures to work with me because they want to be six figure mm. freelancers. Mm. Gosh, that's that's interesting. Is that more men or women? Do you, mm, good you, question. Do you know? I mean, that, I have. Do you know that women tend to, if like there's a job application, there was a study. I don't know where what where it is, so don't ask me to quote it. But there was a study, and there was like there were say there were ten things on a list, and women um, didn't have two of the things. They would be like, oh, well, I'm not going to apply. But men yeah. would have only two things and they'd be like, I'm applying. And I think that there's, so this is some of the stuff that I think I, I want to ask you in a minute, but I wonder, I don't know if you have, you can always say rooster or I don't know. And then you can, I'll bug you later for that information. But I think, yeah, and I think it's a good point. I remember hearing that study. I mean, it's interesting because I have about a 50, 50, maybe 60, mm-hmm. 40 split of men and women that I work with. So it hasn't uh, manifested itself in my business, but, but like I have- the- the aspirational ones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, I wouldn't say, I'd have to look. I'd have to really like go back through and look at like my current clients and think like who's really excelling. Um, but I wouldn't say that there's, we have kind of equal case studies. Like one, like we've had two or three really big wins in our um, community this week and and two of them have been from women. Um, so yeah, well, I don't I think know. that I don't think women or men are either ones any better or worse. I just think sometimes it's a, a mindset thing, which is one of the things that yeah. it's so much of the stuff in the book. Uh, if I'm thinking about things that I really care about also and helping people that are in this design recharge family, I want to I know that I have some of those same issues too about reach. How do I reach that those ideal clients? And then I have also that it's the mindset that I continually telling myself things that I shouldn't tell myself or in it, and I'm holding myself back. And so I think that that's some of this is, it's really important. You and I also connected that you have a community and then it's also, it's um, not just this short 
fast community, like five weeks, you'll have blah, 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 right? Like the sham wow guy. Um, but it's more about like this long term and you're learning and there's a safe place, which is also something that I resonate with as well. So absolutely, I have some questions. We, we we're like, we have less than 30 minutes left. So I'm going to do really fast. But John had so many questions that I wanted to get to that really go with kind of what we're talking about. And I think that get into this and we're going to talk more about the book, but um, he watched the conversation that you had with Mark LaRoost. Well said. Yeah. Mm, I tried. I'm really not good with last names. I can do yours for some reason. Um, <laughs> and so, and he found several points helpful in the beginning to change the way I look at my myself in relationship to my business, which I thought was great. And John's here, by the way, or he was a little hey, bit John. ago. Um, I personally struggle with wanting to be liked. Oh, this is me too. I feel like I could have written this. I want to be liked, which, which tends to make me devalue the worth of what I'm offering. I just, if you're over there and this resonates, if you're in the chat and if you're listening on YouTube or whatever, just put it in, this is me, right? Like, just tell me if that, if maybe that's just me, who knows? Um, but to me, that was that um, struggle. Alan says, yes, Pam, right? John, um, a different John, the one in Georgia, John. Um, so then he says, John Ingle says, we do exactly what you said you need to stop doing. If you're going to have a business opposed, as opposed to being a freelancer, we also tend to base, oh, this was the one that oh killed me that I think will also hopefully relate. Oh man, here it is, doc. This is exactly what doc just said. I reduce the price because I want to help. Uh, John says, um, we also tend to base our pricing on what we feel we need for our lifestyle, which also kind of goes back to you in Canada snowboarding, right? Uh, what we need for our lifestyle, which leaves no money to put into the business. So to this point, we struggle with our value versus what is reasonable or our market value. Can you, I don't know if that was even a really, that was just more of a comment, but yeah, being it's a liked. Comment. Yeah. Well, I think the, the thing that came up for me when you were talking then is this concept of, first of all, that I'd like to touch on is reducing your prices because you want to help. All right. So the question that I'd love everybody to think about is in what ways by undercharging might you be damaging your clients? I don't know. Well, here's some examples. Because I really um, struggle with this, Matt. This is like super bands just like, great question. Glad I'm not. John said crickets. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's an example. So another question is how do you feel, right? Let's say... I was speaking to a client earlier, right? And when we first started working together, he was charging anywhere between $512 and $1,200 for a website. Okay. Now, his minimum fee for a website is $6,000. And he isn't really doing any more work. In fact, he said to me on the call, I'm probably doing less work. And I said, tell me, how did you feel when you used to take on those five to $1,200 projects? compared to how you feel now. And he said, it's completely different. He said, at the end, I started to resent my clients. And then actually, by the end, I didn't really want to help them because I felt like I was just giving my soul for nothing in return. Mm. I said, well, what's different now? And he said, well, the difference is now that the energy is totally different. Um, and the way I show up in my business is totally different. I said, cool, awesome. And then I said, how do you think your clients feel when they spend £6,000 on a website versus $500, right? How do they treat that website? And think about this for yourself, right? If mm. you were going to buy something, 
for yourself or for your business mm -hmm. and you spent $6,000 on it versus 500, how would that change the way that you treated that thing? How would it change the way that you showed up mm. for that thing? That's a great analogy. Totally. You're not going to like leave it out in the yard if it's a, a you know, a cheaper version. It's the plastic version. I'll just get another one when this one gets ruined. Other than rather than like your dad being a joiner and we're paying for this table that's going to be um, a legacy in our family. Right. Mm. So that's just one thing. Right. The second thing is the actual way that you work. So now he's got a project manager. He's got other people that he can bring on in his team within that six thousand dollar scope. So the quality of the work goes up. Mm. And so when I'm coaching my clients, and I used to battle with this exact same thing, right? I raise my prices and I think, oh, well, what about if people can't afford it? Or do I really need that money, right? Do I need that money? Um, but here's the thing, when people, so I had th this client the other day and we give people two options because we know that like not everyone has thousands of pounds sitting around in the bank. We give people two options. Either you can break this down and pay for it like on a monthly basis, or you can just pay up front and we give you a bit of a discount for committing to upfront. And so she started paying monthly and I could sense a bit of resistance from her. And so we bought a couple of these things to these coaching calls and she said, look, I just feel like I'm in the middle of the storm and I don't really know what's going on. And I said, have you really committed to this? Like, do you feel 100% committed or have you still kind of got one foot out? Are you still looking to stay in that old life? Hmm. She said, yeah, I'll be honest. Like I am still, I've still got one foot out. And I said, Honestly, like I don't want to work with you if you've got one foot out. Like the way that this works is we're 100% committed. We're going to get you through the other side of the storm, but you've got to be with us and you've got to be willing to ride those waves. And she said, yeah, okay. She went away and thought about it. And like a few days later, I get a text that says, I've been thinking about what you said. Um, I want to pay for the program in full because I just want to be all in. And I can guarantee you that she's going to show up completely differently to when she was paying for that monthly. Mm. she's found that money she's invested it and she has thrown a rock in front of her and it is going to drag her to getting those results she's going to get to the other side of that storm come hell or high water mm. I, so um, it's not just for you that's what i want everyone mm. to get is the money isn't just for you think about like experience next time you go and buy something expensive or treat yourself or invest in something think about how you feel mm. When you do that compared to when you're just buying the cheaper version of it or mm. not paying a lot of money, it's not just for you. So then, it, but then it kind of goes into that, um, how you value yourself. Uh, and, and then sometimes we go into that whirlwind of I'm not as good as blah, blah, right? Or some of the things that we are innately good at, we don't value because we've had that our whole lives, right? Your ability to kind of look at a problem from the 30,000 foot view, you probably didn't um, realize that that was so needed. And um, all your conversations, you were good with people. And you, as a designer, we're behind a computer a lot. So having people skills maybe wasn't as something that you knew how to put into place and as uh, extra I don't know, a superpower. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, probably it's probably one of the reasons I've got a job because, you know, that's a lot, a lot of what I teach people to do. But I really believe that we are all intuitively good 
at making friends, like at, at building relationships. And I always say to people on the call, they're like, oh, I don't know, I'm an introvert, sit behind me. I say, cool, do you have any friends? I'm like, well, yeah, of course we've got friends. Okay, cool, well, how did you make those friends? And they're like, well, you know, we got to know blah, blah, and this and that. And they're like, cool, well, that's how you make new friends. <laughs> and that's how you build relationships with your clients. So you can make the story all day about being introverted or I'm stuck behind a computer, da, 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 da. But what I realized, and this is a mentor that I've been working with recently, is that all of this stuff we're talking about right now is essentially our ego, mm. right? It's the story we have about ourselves. It's our identity of who mm -hmm. I am. And any time you put that identity in front of serving your client, you're doing them a disservice. Mm. And so I just stopped doing it. So, but how? Because that seems like a very hard... Um... Just let it go. Change the story. Like when, what? Well, because here's the thing, right? First of all, admittedly, you do have to have um, a kind of compelling mission. You do have to know who you want to help. Mm -hmm. Tony Robbins, I know I've mentioned him twice now, but I'm a big, big fan of like his philosophies and, and his work. Um, he says that like all emotional suffering is a result of an obsession with ourselves. You can't give, you can't be focused on giving and helping and be depressed and pissed off and angry. It's not possible. You're either focused on you or you're focused on mm. serving and helping someone. Mm. And so when you serve and help and you really focus on that person and their problems and you lean in and you're present and you use your intuition and you connect with that person and you're like, this is my mission. This is what I want to do. And one of the reasons we, we spend quite a lot of time on finding people's why and getting them excited about something bigger than themselves is because it's very powerful. If you can focus on something that's bigger than you and actually helping people and solving problems, all of that ego stuff seems way less important. And when it does come up, you realize, ah, that's my stuff again. Mm. And it's getting in the way of me helping people. And actually, that's quite selfish. So this wasn't on the sheet either, Matt. So how do you value success? Like what is a success metric for you? Is it, it, is it, it doesn't seem like it would just be money because you had money before you could charge more. I mean, that's one metric, but um, it's not a metric I use. I mean, I have to have enough money. I would not be good if I didn't, but um, I mean, I, my husband would not be happy, um, but what is there another metric for you yeah massively i mean like recently my metric for success has been impact and the way that i measure that primarily is with my clients because they're my first concern when i see people getting the results i know they're capable of and i know they deserve whilst having an impact for their clients and making a dent in the world like ultimately for me that is the that is the ultimate version of success you know that when you go to bed at night like not only have you helped someone fulfill their goals and dreams and everything but you are now putting them on a course where they're helping someone else and it's like this knock-on effect and you know that everything you do big or small is having some kind of positive impact and I think it's important for the money to come with it because if you're not if the money isn't coming in you haven't got the kind of business success 
then essentially you're just a charity or like you're a martyr. You feel like you have to help everybody else apart from yourself. And I think the thing about money and all of our like emotional triggers and everything around money and, and ourselves and treating ourselves well is that we don't realize that that is just another extension of being able to serve everybody else. So whether you're a mom, whether you're a coach, whether you're a designer, whatever it is, there's always going to be people in your life that you can help and want to help. And you're not going to be able to help them as much if you're stressed out, worrying about money, um, not taking care of yourself. And so what you've got to realize is, although it may feel selfish in that time to have more money and to have time for myself and to actually do what I want to do, in the long run, you're helping everybody around you. Yeah. Okay. So John had another question. How do you balance, this is still pricing sort of, because okay. since we're sort of on that same thing, we'll kind of rapid fire these so we can get through some more. How do you balance what you need to charge for a given service or feel it's worth than, with what the current market will bear or expect? Is that even a thing? No. I, I thought you were going to say. <laughs> the current market isn't a thing. Like there's always going to be someone who's the most expensive. And there's always going to be somebody cheaper. Yeah. Right? So why why not be you? Right. Because here's the cool thing. If you go and find the person who's most expensive in your industry, I'm guaranteed they'll have clients. So therefore, being the most expensive works. Okay. So here's here, here's how he rephrased that. In other words, how do you know what you feel you should charge is reasonable? Is reasonable well, I, even something that comes into play? Is it more about value? The way that I work it out is I, I work it out based on the return for my clients. Mm -hmm. And I will admit that that is easier as a business coach than it is as, say, a graphic designer. But it's definitely not impossible. And so I'm just curious. So if I'm a graphic designer and someone comes to me and says, would you like, like, we need a logo designing. Okay, cool. Tell me more about that. What are you hoping to achieve with this logo? If you had this logo, what would it give you? How would it impact how you feel about your brand? And I'm curious. And if the answers to those questions are not a lot, it would just look nice, then, then there probably isn't the value that I can bring. Whereas if it's like, well, actually, our logo is so outdated and people aren't taking us seriously. And if we had a, a more coherent brand that we were really proud of that looked professional, then we probably would have a different kind of business. Okay, cool. So we see that there's a big problem here to be solved. So therefore, there's value to be added and therefore there's money to be made. Like people don't pay big money or a lot of money to solve small problems. Hmm. So if you want to charge more and you want to add value, find bigger problems to solve. Hmm. And find the people who value that as a big problem. And yeah, absolutely. Right. That is part of the sales conversation is is oftentimes getting people to see that it's a bigger problem. There's this great uh, poem that gets banded around in the sales world called For Want of a Nail. I'll just tell you it really quickly because it's quite powerful. So it goes, for, for want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For want of a horse, a rider was lost. For want of a rider, a message was lost. For want of a message, a battle was lost. For want of a battle, a kingdom was lost. All for the want of a nail. Mm, that is powerful. Mm. Mm, that is. Okay. Well, so John had another question that kind of- Go on, John. John's on I a know. roll. John should just be here, right? Doing this. Forget about Diane. 
So, but it goes into this, and this is something that I know Chris Doe called you the Chris Doe of the UK, right? So you're the Christo. You need to lose a little bit more hair, I think, on top to yeah, be the full Christo. Keep shaving right? it down. I know. Keep shaving it. it, buddy. Get some designer caps, <laughs> right? But um, the he when I uh, first joined the Future Pro Group, I it was kind of like the broken leg. The guy wanted to do snowboarding. I'm happy to teach you snowboarding, but we got to fix your broken leg first. Um, and I just thought that was what everybody did. I what he calls discovery or core or whatever people do. I was already doing it and it was just what I did as an initial meeting. Um, and I wasn't charging for it. Now I kind of work it into what it is for a website uh, because you have to do it. You have to do that, that work. Or, and if they're not willing to do that work, then it's not a good fit for me. Cause I want to make a difference too. Absolutely. So these lead in conversations, and I know you have something like this on your website. It'll say, I don't know what your call to action is, but it's like book a call or something. You're like, let's get together. And you have these or somebody on your team does these. Um, So John's just calling it a lead in conversation with potential clients to determine whether it's a good fit. And I think that's what you're kind of doing as well. Right. So it's, Mm -hmm. I don't know how long these conversations you think as a designer uh, it should be. Um, And maybe it's different for each person so that they can assess if it is a good fit. Um, And then do you charge for it? Great question. Yeah. My favorite term that I've heard used for it is triage call. Mm. And the reason I like that is because I think of it a little bit like hospital, people coming through your doors, right? Um, You don't want to be prioritizing the person who's got a sprained ankle. You want to be prioritizing the person who's got a bleeding neck. Mm-hmm. And so really like on that call, you're just trying to figure out like, has this person got a bleeding neck? Whether they know it or not, do they have one? Um, and so, no, I don't charge for it because, I mean, I, I don't really take most of those myself anymore. Um, in fact, we have things slightly differently where most of the information that we need to know from a triage call can can be um gathered from a short form Mm -hmm. so actually one of the things that we do is we have a short form that people fill out and if we think that we can help and they'd be a good fit then we invite them to what's called a strategy call and it's like a small group of uh, freelancers and agency owners who are a very similar level in their career struggling with very similar challenges and we run through our framework and kind of talk them through it individually in relation to their problems and challenges And if they think, oh my God, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's what I need. Then we invite them to an enrollment call, which is specifically about working with us. Um, So that's kind of how we do it. But it's taken us a while to to get that process down and to know the right questions to ask. But no, I don't charge for it because it's a little bit like charging someone to try on a suit. Mm. You know, you don't want to try charge someone to try on the suit. You want to charge them to walk out with the suit. And so, you know, if you charge them to try on the suit and then they find out the suit doesn't fit, they're going to be pretty annoyed. Mm-hmm. So really that that call is just to figure out, I'm really looking for three things. Uh, number one, is there a gap between where they are now and where they want to be? Mm, the islands. Yeah, absolutely. Number two, are they um, ready to invest some time, money, and energy into closing that gap? Mm. Um, and number three, do we want to work with them? Do they seem like the kind of person that I would enjoy working with. Mm, okay. So tell them about the islands because this is in the book and it's great. And I had a question about it and I'll have to hunt and see what, um, where I put the island 
Yeah, and, that's cool. So like in a in a nutshell, whenever I'm talking to someone, I'm thinking there's two islands. There's island A, which is where they are right now. And there's island B, which is where they're trying to get to. And my aim in that conversation is to figure out as much detail about both islands and what the thing is in the middle that's stopping them get to island B. Like what's really going on? And most of the time, and this is where a little trick that I'll share with people, most of the time, um, the thing that people think is the problem isn't actually the problem. Mm -hmm. So in those calls, what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm listening for the unseen, unknown problem. And as a creative, if you can get good at spotting that, immediately you will transform your value and your ability to help people. So how are ways people can practice that? Because I can think of a few things that um, it's not great because you can't follow up maybe, but it's just about spotting those problems. How, how would you tell somebody, is it doing a bunch of these intro calls if you have time so that you can see if you can spot problems without mm. a commitment of doing the work? Or what yeah, I'm say? listening. What I'm essentially listening for is thinking and action mistakes. And so as creatives, I believe we all under, underestimate our own value. We all think that everybody knows what we know, right? Everybody has this expected. This is just an obvious thing. But in most cases, they don't. And so instead of getting on a call and trying to convince someone of something or bring in an agenda, I'm usually just curious mm. and I'm just getting like really good at listening. And what I'm listening for is I'm, I'm essentially, from a coaching perspective, I'm listening for the story. What's the story they're bringing to this call? Like, mm. how do they see this landscape? And do I see that landscape the same as them? Or do I see something differently? Do I see something that they're doing or the way that they're thinking, which is currently creating their results? So I think people could practice this with other people. They could mm. also practice this by listening in Clubhouse or yep. um, listening to, I think Clubhouse is great just because um, you're figuring out, uh, you're just listening, you're an observer, but people are sharing. So there's that safety in, in sharing. So, and if people keep coming back, you can kind of see how the story changes or the story evolved. And if your gut was right. And I also think that when you have that gut reaction, you write it down and then you see, even in your life, like what I have this feeling about blank. This is how I think this is, or I don't know exactly, but I feel uncomfortable. And then see, mm. come back to it and see if your gut is checking correctly, I think. Yeah. And just to give, just to give everyone like a really tangible example, so this is not too conceptual. Think about, first of all, when you've done a project in the past, let's just say you build websites. Um, what are some typical things when people come to you and say, I need a website, what are some typical things they think the website is going to give them? So like, oh, I just get this website and you guys can design it all and it's going to look great. Um, you do all the work and then it gets to like page one of Google or something, right? Or uh, design the website first and then we'll think about the copy later. Or, or like, oh, I don't, need to, I don't need to think about what it looks on mobile because I'm not going to be, I don't really use it on mobile. Like I use my, I use, I look at my website on desktop or whatever it is. Like what is the thinking and the stories and the beliefs that people bring about the website? And then your job is to essentially question that or use questions to help them to see mm. a different perspective. Um, and it could be like a logo. So a really common thing is um, 
my brand is my logo, right? So my, my logo is the most important thing about my brand. Might be like a really common belief that your target audience have. And so we, I've actually got this little diagram I use in my clients where we always start with the symptoms that they're experiencing. So if you imagine north, south, uh, north, east, south, and west as like a little dial in front of you, and at the top on north is the symptoms they're experiencing. So you use the doctors as an example. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're looking at their website and they're, they're sick and frustrated every single day that they go on Google Analytics and there's just not really much going on, right? They're looking, they're trying different things. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've tried a bit of SEO. Maybe they've tried this, that, and the other. Nothing's really moving. Now, the next part, on East is the thinking or the action mistake that they're making. And so maybe the thinking is that we just need to stuff a bunch of keywords into our website and eventually we'll get to the top of Google, right? right? Now, okay, so now we've identified that. South is what is the real problem? What's going on? What's under the surface? Now, you know from a web design point of view or a content point of view that the problem is probably that they don't have a consistent strategy or they're not putting out content that's targeted at the right people, that's engaging, that gets people to share it, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's, there's probably a few things going on, right? And then West <laughs> is, the, is the solution. So what is the solution? Well, the solution is to create a strategy, which is a content-based strategy, if that's what you're trying to achieve, um, is to use the appropriate keywords for that content strategy is to design a mobile first website da, 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 and you talk people through your framework of why you do what you do and by doing that by meeting them where they're at with their uh, symptoms and taking them through those thinking mistakes and uncovering the problem when you present the solution it's 10 times more powerful because what you've done is you've come around to their side of the tennis court and you've seen what they're seeing first to say, oh, I totally get why you're hitting the ball over here, but just move your hips slightly this way, bend your racket, and then swing and look where the ball goes now. And they're like, oh, I totally see that. Mm. Rather than just being on the other side of the tennis court and just keep hitting the ball back saying, that's not how you hit it. That's not how you hit it. It's not helping anyone, right? Right. Is this making sense or am I just rambling? No, that <laughs> totally makes sense. And I- Joey's I like so many mixed analogies. Yeah, you gotta throw an analogy in just for good measure. <laughs> Absolutely. Matt, this has been great. I will have to do a part two. This I I don't want to take up all your time. I so appreciate we didn't get any of mine, but I I always like I just want you guys to know. I always put y'all ahead of me. I think that I have very similar questions as y'all, and so I thought John did a great job of coming up with questions. He did have kind of one more, but um, but I guess just thank you so much for taking the time because I know it took time to write a book. I know it takes time to, to um, you said you didn't have time or money really to invest in that in Daniel Priestley's um, courses and, and community, but you did it. So I know that there, there's always a sacrifice, but what for you, as you're looking back, what was that biggest thing that you sacrificed at that time um, to get to that next stage? Because I think that was a turning point. Yeah, I mean, it, it was that it was it was time, money and energy. I remember once we've got a festival in the UK called the Isle of Wight Festival, and it was my cousin's 50th birthday. And the Saturday fell on the day that we had one of the workshops. And I remember going out Friday night, not not drinking because I didn't want to be hung over the next day. And I got a ferry all the way back from the Isle of Wight to London to attend a one day workshop 
got a ferry all the way back to the festival again and carried on partying. <laughs> so like, you know, I was pretty dedicated to it. I think that that's, there's something to that. So you sacrificed social or family um, for a greater good for um, more people longer term. You knew your cousin, you would be able to see him and see those people, right? Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes we we forget what maybe we're sacrificing um, by not charging as much. We're sacrificing something by living in that. And I know Van talks a lot about these stories, these stories we're telling ourselves about where we fit in. And I think that when you're talking about these stories that the, I also think about the islands as, you know, they, they want to go to Island B, but and you talk about a bridge or a boat or, you know, and I was also like, oh, where's the helicopter? You know, there's could be yeah. a helicopter. There's all kinds of things. And and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's best to go to Island C and then go to B or maybe you just skip because, again, there's always so much investigation in in our business and our businesses change. So it's about being more open to how things can go. But I do think it's important to have that vision and and we have to sit down and and sit with that vision, even if it changes and being okay with it, it changing, I think is really important. The, the book is incredible. I've shared some links. I'm going to share it again. Um, and if you guys are listening or watching on YouTube, um, you can always, they're right below. If you uh, click down, you'll be able to click on these links. So Matt, S-M-E-S-S-A-M dot C-O dot U-K slash free hyphen resources. And if you want a link to download a free copy of the book, it's also there and you can check it out at createandprosper.co. Again, that's the book, Create and Prosper. And then you can also follow Matt on Instagram at Instagram and then at the at symbol, whatever. You don't have to, anyway, you know how to do Instagram. It's Matt, M-A-T-T underscore E-S-S-A-M. So I just I want to encourage you guys to uh to get this there are it's really it doesn't take that long if you're a fast reader i'm sure you can get it done really quick um i am not a fast reader and i think that there's a lot of there's a lot of nuggets in here so i would like take it and read it and think about it and then to come back and i actually think it'd be good to do this read it with somebody and check out what matt's doing i think he's helping a lot of people and Matt, I just thank you for taking the time and answering so many people's questions and hitting on on parts of what um, we struggle with. Us, one thing I love about you is that you're very approachable and real, and you're not. Um, I don't know you. You have a a manner that feels like you were you were me. I mean, you were in my shoes, and so it feels like I I can trust you because I see. And I think it's um, you work with a lot of people that are. Um, it, they've been in their business. And I, I loved learning that also. So you have a um, focused in and you're, you're able to by niching down by claiming that, although it's very scary to do, um, you've done it and then you're just going with it and you're committed to it. And what you end up being is that now people come to you because they know you work for them because you've said these things. I work with people who blank, blank, blank. And now it's like, oh, well, you, that's who I am. Instead of saying, I work with everyone, you know, mm. then I don't know if he knows me, you know? Yeah. And that is it's interesting because I go on people's websites now. I came across a copywriter earlier and I was like, oh, you know, I could maybe use some help with copywriting. And the first thing I'm looking for on the website is like, are they talking to me? Like, do they help coaches? Do they help coaches and entrepreneurs and these kind of like, if yes, like, I want to know that you get me, you get my world and you can help me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because otherwise we might just be spending money and we it might not be a good fit. It might be that suit and you're like, mm, but can you m- meet my body type? Right. Do you help really short people? Right. I mean, not you, me. Um, the Lord knows I've never owned a suit. But um, but anyway, you don't look short to me. So I'm, I'm six foot three. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I'm five one. So but I feel six four. I have a yeah. six-four person inside. Well, if you stand on your tiptoes, you might get there. Yeah. I'm usually in people's armpits. So <laughs> that's that's where I, I live in. So I usually hang back if there's a huge group of people at a, a event with their arms up. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good in the back, um, <laughs> <laughs> even though I can't see. Anyway, um, Matt, thank you so much for for doing this and for being open to popping on and being my friend and um, I just appreciate what you're doing and I can't wait to learn more and I can't, hopefully you'll do a part two with us. hundred percent. Thank you for having me on that. And it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great to meet your community. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of what you do and uh, I know this won't be our last conversation. <laughs>